If you want to open your Bibles to Psalm 99, that will be our scripture today. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statutes that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you so much, TK, for reading that passage for us so beautifully. Again, my name is Russ Ramsey. I'm the pastor here at Christ Pres Cool Springs. Welcome. It's good to have you all with us here on this Labor Day weekend. We're concluding this series, putting the Psalms to work, uh, by looking at enthronement psalms. These are that's what this psalm is, and as a way of getting into this. Um, topic and kind of locating ourselves in it. Um, I've, I've spent some time lately, and I, I, if you've been around me, you know I, I kind of get reminiscent about when I was younger. Um, I tell probably a lot of stories about when I was a kid uh, from this pulpit, and um, I've been thinking about that. I, what I've been thinking about specifically is how I'm, I'm almost 50 now. And one of the things that I've experienced as somebody who has been a Christian for um, over 30 years of my life is that the the journey of faith, and tell me if this isn't the same for you, the journey of faith has seasons where there's a, a kind of an elegant simplicity to what it means to be a follower of the Lord. And then there are other seasons where it's really complicated in, in, our, in our minds. We have existential crises and we go through seasons like this. And I don't know what, what kind of thing you're in right now, but, but um, you know, I, just being transparent, I'm in a season where I've been wrestling with a lot of things, a lot of things internally. I'm fine. Don't worry, I'm fine. But, but you know, I'm in a season like that. In my office at home, um, I have this shelf that is full of old prayer journals, journals that I started keeping when I was an 18-year-old, actually when I was a 15-year-old, when I became a Christian. And, and it's, you know, it's a stack about, I don't know, about that high uh, that goes all the way into college. And I was a big journaler. It was a part of, of the way that I 
uh, chronicled the early years of, of my faith. Um, it happened to be my last years as a teenager that's captured in these, in these journals, and sometimes I'll pull one off the shelf and I'll start to read it. And it's a strange experience as, as somebody in their 40s reading, reading the words of their own words when they were 15 or 16 years old and the things that, we, that I thought about. Um, so they, they were my, they're prayers, they're all prayers, but they reflect so much. They reflect the kind of burdens that I was carrying at the time. They reflect uh, the dreams that I was wanting to coax into, into life and into flame. Um, they, they talk about girls I had crushes on. They, they talk about friends that I spent time with and, and wisdom that I was trying so hard to obtain at that age. And if I were to bring one and open it up and read to it, or read from it to you, what would happen is my, my cheeks would just flush with embarrassment. And the reason is because one thing that is evident to me in these journals is just how little I knew about anything. Uh, how confident I could be in things that I knew nothing of and how spiritual I could be about those things that I knew nothing of. Uh, one of my philosophies, one of my, uh, when people ask for journaling advice, which, you know, happens more than you might think, um, is I have two rules for journaling. Rule number one is keep no agenda with the journal. And rule number two, and this is the harder one of the two, is keep... Keep the journal. Like, don't throw it away. Don't read it and be mortified with the words that you're seeing on the page, the earnestness, the, the, the foolishness, whatever. Keep it, because it's a record. It's a record of who you are. But when I read those journals, when I look back through them, one of the things that I see is there's a thread that runs through them that is convicting to me now. And the thread is this. Those prayers reveal a simple belief in the holiness and the sovereignty of God. They reflect a time in my life where the idea of the sovereignty of God and the holiness of God blew my mind. Uh, Just the thought of it, the thought that God was in as much control as he was, that he had as much power as he did, and that all of his decisions and his ways and his power was perfect. It's a faith that has gotten complicated the longer I've lived and the older I've gotten. It's a young faith that's been tested. And I think that that's the experience of anybody who has a faith journey, is that part of the experience of walking with the Lord is believing certain things to be true about this God as we're getting to know him, and then encountering things in life later that make us say, you're not who I thought you were. And that is not to say, you're not who I thought you were, therefore you're unworthy of my worship. It's just I thought this was going to go one way, and in your sovereignty and in your holiness and in your power, it's not gone that way. It's gone a different way. I'm a person who struggles with anxiety. I have seasons of my life where it it runs pretty hot. I'm kind of in one of those right now. I have seasons of my life where it's kind of absent, Um, but I've wrestled with this since I was in my, my 20s, and it's the kind of feeling, and if you wrestle with anxiety, you know it too. It's the feeling you feel it in your heart and you feel it in your shoulders and in your, in your whole body, right? And part of the reason for this is I read the news too much. I worry about the economy for some reason. I, I feel people's displeasure toward me deeply and in my heart. 
I grant that they're probably right to feel displeasure toward me when I find that people have displeasure toward me. Uh, I, I know more than I should about the personal lives of politicians and celebrities, and I'm, I'm not looking for this information. I just know it, and I don't want to know it, but it's hard not to know it. And these things all kind of add up. We're not meant to carry all of the things that we carry. We're not meant really to know all of the things that we know about everything that's happening in the world. It's a lot for us to process and to carry, and we carry it like a burden. Do you have seasons like this? where you feel fragile and you feel like the world and our place in it uh, are crumbling a little bit, what do you do with that? What do you do when you're in a season like that? One of the best things we can do is pray and meditate upon enthronement psalms, is to put psalms like the one that TK just read for us so beautifully, put psalms like that to work. Psalm 99 is what's called an enthronement psalm, and this is a genre of scripture that is intended to call the reader to praise God for his authority and for his rule over all creation, to praise him for his rule over all history and over every place and people and nation that there's no corner of creation or time over which God does not rule. He rules it all. And what enthronement psalms do is they focus on this. They focus on his kingly reign over all things, emphasizing both his sovereignty and his eternality, that he doesn't change in this. So I want to walk through, as has been our custom with this series, to say, what does the psalm say, and then how can we put it to work? So, Let's walk through it. This psalm, Psalm 99, what it does is it celebrates God's kingship, focusing specifically on his holiness and the miracle of his grace and his mercy extended to those in need of forgiveness. There are journal pages filled with prayers written in my hand, marveling at the sovereignty of God and his mercy and his grace. Marvel, trying to get my mind around the concept. Though the focus of the psalm is on God's kingship, that's what we're reading about here, and his mercy over Israel, who is rebellious, verse 2 in this psalm extends that mercy to all people. And when it extends that mercy to all people, that includes us people, (laughs) us here in this room right now. What does he say? He says, let all people everywhere praise God. Praise the mighty and merciful name of the Lord. So let's walk through it. Verses 1 through 5 tells us this. The Lord reigns. Full stop. He reigns. So let the whole peoples tremble. He is enthroned upon the angels. Exalt the Lord. Worship at his footstool, bow before him in reverence and awe. He is utterly holy in every way. And what I love about this is the power of God is being expressed here, but it's being expressed in a way that is different from how the world measures power. The world measures power in terms of who can subdue whom. But here, God's power is measured by purity. And it's measured by holiness. 
It's measured by righteousness. What that means is it isn't brute force that makes God so powerful. It's his equity, his perfect equity. It's his justice. It's his holiness. And against those things, there is no greater force. And so the call here is to worship him, not because if we don't, he'll crush you, though he could, right? The call here is to worship him because he alone and no one else, he alone is enthroned in righteousness and no power in this world will ever be able to topple his authority ever. He alone is holy. And so the psalm is telling us in verses one through five, look no further for an object to worship, for one to worship, because God alone is righteous and powerful in his holiness. And then you get into verses six and seven, and the psalmist starts talking about Moses and Aaron and Samuel. And this is more than a history lesson that's happening here. The psalmist will often do this. They'll often appeal to history. They'll appeal to things that the Lord has done in the past, which is a beautiful way of praying in such a way as to trust the Lord, even when we can't see how he's going to work here. Because the psalmist will say, though I can't see how you're going to work here, what I can see is how you have worked in the past and you have always shown to be yourself faithful. And so I will trust in that even as now I'm in this situation and I don't know how it's going to go. But what happens in this psalm is, is it's more than a history lesson. When, when the psalmist brings up Moses and Aaron and Samuel, what he's reminding us is he's reminding us that God has established a way for us to worship him. He has invited us into his presence by his grace, that God has kept a relationship with his people, and he has not left us alone in our sin. And that is amazing. It's amazing that God hasn't left us alone, but instead has provided a way for us to be in relationship with him. What did the Lord do? Well, Moses, Aaron, and Samuel, they're priests that the Lord gave Israel priests. And when those priests called on the name of the Lord, the Lord answered them. And the Lord stayed close to them. Again, not to just drive home the simplicity of a simple faith, of a young faith, but I just said to you from a pulpit in a church, that the Lord hears the prayers of his people and he stays close to them. Do you know how much energy and misery and suffering and money and bloodshed has happened with people trying to figure out how to connect to the divine in some way that will make the divine hear and be close? The psalm is telling us the only way that happens is by the divine one condescending to love us in that way. That this is something he does. In other words, being in this room for a corporate worship service is a privilege. And it's a privilege not granted to you from me. It's a privilege for all of us, the nearness of the Lord, something that isn't a right that we merit. 
but it's something that God gives us just as he gave it to Israel despite their rebellious ways. It is no small thing to worship the Lord. Charles Spurgeon said it like this. He said, infinite condescension makes him stoop to be called our God. And truth and faithfulness bind him to maintain that covenant relationship. May we never reverse the order on these things. And I, you see it everywhere, right? You see it. It's, not, it's nothing new, but people place humanity at the center of everything as though we are the ones who are worthy of deepest honor because we're people. According to how we define honor and how we demand honor. And we do this to the point of even being critical of God when he isn't what we think he should be. We can put ourselves at the middle of everything. And what the psalm is doing is it's reminding us that any nearness to God that we have, any of it, anything that we might experience is something that he has established and something that, frankly, he has condescended to out of mercy and grace because he is the enthroned one. That's heavy. Then we get into verses 8 and 9 that close the psalm. And these verses remind us again of the kind of God that we have a relationship with. The kind of God that condescends to have a relationship with us. And it is a God who is a forgiving God. A merciful God. Again, journal pages you could fill on forgiveness. Even the best people, even the best of God's people like Moses and Aaron relied on his forgiveness. But notice, too, that it isn't just that God forgives. It's also that he avenges wrongdoing. You saw that verse go by, right? That he avenges wrongdoing. Not just the wrongdoing that is committed against us, but also he avenges the wrongdoing that is committed by us. Our holy God, in other words, is a chastening God. Spurgeon, again, says this. I love Spurgeon. He, he has a way. Um, but he said this. He says that God forgave the sinner, but he slew their sins. God doesn't let sin go unaddressed. How does he address it? Well, he addresses it in us by way of his disciplining hand, which is meant to bring about a deeper holiness in us by forming our character. But ultimately... God deals with the vileness of our sin by placing its wage upon his son, Jesus, who takes it willingly and then robes us in his perfect righteousness so that when the father looks at us, when our faith is in his son, all that he sees is the righteousness of his son because his son has taken our sin upon himself nailed it to the cross, defeated the power of the wage of sin, which is death, and given us life in his name and robed us in his righteousness. That is the gospel. That is Christianity right there. Why does God do this? Why does God make a way for us to have a relationship with him? Because as we read in the last verse of this psalm, we were made to worship him. We exist to worship him, to adore him, we are at our most human when we are seeking the joy of delighting in our creator. 
who reigns in perfect equity, justice, righteousness, and holiness, and is merciful and forgives. This is elevated, right? This is elevated language. So how can we use this psalm in prayer? How can we put it to work? I think at its most basic level, the first thing we do is acknowledge that we are worshipers. We're worshipers by nature. We all are. The question for all of us is, what do you worship? And the question beneath that is, what is, what is really worthy of your worship? And so I want to quickly go through three ways that we can use this psalm in prayer, three practices for this psalm. And the first is this, practice worshiping God in a posture of reverence over his holiness. So practice worshiping God in a posture of reverence over his holiness. In other words, cultivate a reverential fear of the Lord. And you may hear that and say, I hear people talk about having a fear of the Lord. Isn't it kind of counter to his love to fear him? Not in the sense that the Bible uses it. The Bible uses fear in the same language, in the same way as revere. Revere the Lord for who he says he is and who he is. All holy, all powerful, all just, the judge of heaven and earth. Revere him, fear him in that as holy. Part of this is, is a way of remembering who we are in relationship to him. That although God is affectionate, although God is fatherly, although God loves us and draws near to us, he's not our buddy, right? God is not your pal. He's the maker of heaven and earth. It's when, I, I remember, you know, as, as a kid, I went through a phase where I would open my prayers, you know, hey, daddy, um, which just makes me want to cringe saying it out loud right now. But part of, the, part of the, the, the idea behind that was that there's this Abba-child sort of relationship, which is a real biblical thing. But the older I get, the more I think there's kind of a difference between a super familiar, you know, finger guns at God and, a, uh, and what Tim Keller said uh, when he said the, the only person who can wake up a king at three in the morning for a glass of water as a child. That there's an appropriateness to remembering the kingliness of God, even as we remember his affection. Refere him for who he is. First Peter, Peter writes it this way. He says in First Peter 1, if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, if you call on him like that, then conduct yourselves with fear, Throughout the time of your exile, knowing you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, and you were ransomed not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish. Revere God for this. Fear him for this. Worship him for this. Confess your utter inability to ransom yourself. As a kid, it was a simpler thing. And my prayer now is I'm asking for that back, for the simplicity, I'm asking for that back. And I'm asking you, will you join me in that? Have you, have you complicated your walk with the Lord to the point that he's now distant in your mind and heart 
because all of the intricacies that you've added into that process. So that's practice one. Practice worshiping God in a posture of reverence over his holiness. Practice number two. Practice worshiping God in a posture of submission to his authority. Ah, wow. We live in a time where conversations about submission to authority of any kind is controversial because of how authority is often abused or because of how authority is often perceived as abusive. We live in a time now that can say authority in and of itself is abusive. That's not true, but it's, it can be perceived that way, and authority is often used in abusive ways. So the question of authority, though, still remains, and that is who is, who is then worthy of submission? And if this language of submission is making you uncomfortable, think it through to the end, like follow the thread. Because we live in a time that bristles at the very idea of submission and judgment. But let me pose some questions that challenge this. The first is, do you believe in such a thing as righteousness? In other words, is there a standard of holiness somewhere? Some perfect measure of goodness. And if you believe that there is, where is it? Where does it reside? Another question, do you believe that you will have to give an account of your life in somehow or some way? Or do you believe nobody has to give an account of anything ever? Nobody lives like that, right? If somebody cuts you off in traffic, the first thing that rises up inside of you is that person needs to give an account of themselves to me, right? Because they're unrighteous, and I have been wounded by their unrighteousness. We laugh at it, but do you understand that something big is in play there? And that is we have some sense of justice, we have some sense of righteousness, and the question is, where does that come from? Do you believe you will have to give an account for your life? And if you do not believe that, do you believe other people will have to give accounts for their lives? And is it possible that only some will and others won't? And on what basis would you ever make that assumption? Because that's a big assumption. You see how tricky it gets? You can't just write off righteousness. You can't just write off goodness as being some social thing that we all just kind of agree on because nobody agrees. So you might take this other approach, which is very common today, and that is to say, I submit to no one. Nobody's the boss of me. And in saying that, you reveal that you do, in fact, live under submission. You're submitted to an authoritative voice, firmly. What's that authoritative voice? Your own. That you yield to an authoritative voice, it just happens to be your own authoritative voice. And the question is not whether you or I obey an authoritative voice or submit. We all do. We all follow authoritative voices. And these voices determine the code that we're going to live by. They determine the moral compass that we're going to follow. They determine the things and the people that we're going to value. And each of us submits to this authoritative voice and lives by it, even if that voice is just our own voice. And so the question is not if we will yield our lives to an authoritative voice. The question is which authoritative voice should you yield to? 
And have you ever considered what that voice is for you? What qualifies that authoritative voice to hold such an important role in this one life you've been given? If the main authority that we yield to is just our own, here's the problem with that. The problem with that is you are following a voice whose wisdom and insight is no greater than what you already possess. And I will just tell you, for me, that is a train wreck coming. If I'm yielding to a wisdom that is no greater than what I already think I understand, life has told me, well, you're in for some, some learning. <laughs> So this psalm, what it does is it gives us clarity. It says, listen, on this authoritative voice, the submission question, God alone, alone is worthy of your submission. And the reason he is worthy of your submission is because he alone is holy. He's the only one. He's the only one who's holy. We are not. And this psalm is not calling us to submit <clears throat> to toxic narcissism. It's not calling us to submit to a tyrannical bully in the sky. And nor is it calling us to submit to the nearsightedness of our own limited wisdom and experience. We submit to our perfectly holy creator who rules with equity and justice and righteousness and who never abuses his power or misjudges or manipulates us in order to preserve his power. As our creator, he has a right to us. We are his, and he will judge us all, and he will judge us all perfectly. And the standard that he will uphold will be one of perfect righteousness. But the good news of this is that here is our perfect judge, and he's also the one who has supplied our perfect ransom. The ransom is not the best that we could think up but it's what our perfect holy judge provided for us, knowing it would be sufficient, perfectly sufficient. So practice worshiping God in a posture of authority to his submission. And then finally, practice worshiping God in a posture of joy for his mercy. As you read scripture and as you pray, whenever you come across some indication of the mercy of God in his word, you're looking at a divine gift. You're looking at a gift of incalculable worth, a miracle of grace. Celebrate it every time, every time. Anytime you encounter God in his holiness, indicating his mercy to us, which we're about to do when we come to the communion table, Understand that this is a miracle of grace that we're called into this. Celebrate it every time. Write about it in your journal. Meditate on the reach of God's mercy. Meditate on the cost of his kindness. And meditate on the eternality of his promises to never leave us and never forsake us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for enthronement psalms. We confess that as 
Americans living in the West, we have some critical distance from anything that's kingly, uh, from talking about kingship and, and that, that sort of idea. And yet at the same time, you have made us to be people who understand what it means to desire power and authority. And you've also made us to be people who inherently understand on some level what it means to revere righteousness and holiness and a desire to be governed by that. And so, Lord, help us to walk in this. Um, Help us as we grow in our faith to not grow in such a way that as it becomes more and more complex and as life brings situations that we didn't anticipate or, or, uh, or, or don't really know how to, how to solve or walk through, uh, that, that we wouldn't move a million miles away from you. But Lord, we ask that you would help us to retain um, a, a simplicity of faith when it comes to your holiness and your mercy and our need for both of those. We thank you for the, uh, the invitation to worship you here as we continue now and prepare to come to your table. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.